Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are picking up uh, kind of where we left off in the last episode. We are in our Myth is America series where we are deconstructing U.S. history uh, and drawing into critical inquiry the ethically constitutive story that many of us have been kind of socialized into believing regarding our collective past here in the United States. So last episode, we uh, kind of did the entire narrative around Tecumseh and him being a revolutionary hero and his exploits not really being understood, not just as exploits, but the oppression and subjugation that both he and his people and all other First Nations felt. This all took place around what um, Nick and myself are collectively calling the New Republic's colonialism. So oftentimes during the colonial era... And we'll have an entire episode about what colonialism is coming up in the future uh, on a global scale. But oftentimes during the colonial era, the United States in history kind of gets off scot-free um, in terms of basically historians, sociologists, anthropologists, everybody looking at the impact they had in a colonial way. Since they were fresh off winning that war f- uh, for independence against Great Britain, many don't view them as a colonial power. But in fact, if we look at it from the perspective of First Nations or even slaves, or as we're going to find out in this episode, even um, the Mediterranean and Africa, there are colonial exploits at play here by the United States. And they follow suit with all of the other uh, basically fundamental problematic parts of colonialism that we see that usually the Dutch or the French or the Spanish or the British or whoever else get blamed for. Any thoughts on that, Nick? No, I was just thinking that like, this is a period in history, like you said, that is much more complex than I think often gets, it gets glossed over in the regular like K through 12 or even like higher education, I think. But like you said, the colonial exploits, all of this is so important into like this foundational period of the country that oftentimes just gets completely ignored, which I think is key. Uh, we're also doing something a little different uh, for, for subscribers that are used to us. We're, we're clearly um, uh, doing this remotely, which we usually don't do, but because of certain circumstances, we're doing this one remotely. So uh, hopefully you like it, um, and uh, let's just get going. So we're going to enter into this after the initial federalist period, which again, we have a couple of episodes on what federalism is and the major actors and movers and shakers of that time period and what they were about. Well, we're entering in just after that period. We're entering into the Jeffersonian era, uh, for lack of a better term. And it is the the Democratic Republicans and just the Republicans that are going to get their first crack at executive power during this, uh, during this time period. Interestingly enough, even though some historians, American historians, like to like differentiate some of the architects of this early period as like super different from each other. They're really not. Uh, even though Jefferson is from a different party and has some different beliefs and definitely disagreed with what happened during the first two federal executive uh, terms, well, first two, I should say first three if we include Adams, he more or less stays the course in terms of how the executive branch is going to work. He does scale down in terms of like his cabinet and things along those lines. And there's a little bit less spending in some regards. But as far as um, expansionism, um, conflict, those all those all become American hallmarks and they remain American hallmarks. So there is um, major controversy during the campaign period. And I'm going to be looking at my computer um, notes as we kind of go through some of this. 
one of the major controversies that's taking place as there is campaigning just for this this first term for Thomas Jefferson is a major slave revolt um, that a lot of people are aware of. It probably deserves its own episode, and we might give it one here in the future. But for now, we're just going to kind of go through some highlights. It is the uh, revolt of Gabriel, and perhaps his last name is Prosser. I have a question mark there because I don't necessarily like giving um, slaves their quote-unquote master's uh, last names. Uh, it's, I don't know, just personal personal issue with it. Anyway, Gabriel was born a slave in Virginia, and he was owned by a man named Thomas Prosser. And he was a trained, like he was a, as a slave, he was a trained blacksmith and had taught himself to be literate, which is a common theme among slave revolutionary leaders. Uh, we're going to see this with uh, Nat Turner when we do an episode on him as well. He was, and this is a quote about him, uh, about Gabriel, a fellow of great courage and intellect above his rank in life. Um, he planned a revolt around 1800. Now, one of the things that is interesting when you kind of investigate uh, Gabriel's revolt in Virginia is there was already a slave revolt brewing in the Caribbean, arguably the most famous slave revolt of the era and one of the slave revolts that eventually led to an, a brand new independent country known as Haiti. Now, it hadn't been completed by 1800 by the time like Gabriel is is about to act, but it is important that those ideas were brewing not just in the Caribbean, but some of them were make some of those ideas were making their way to the American South. In fact, we did an episode where the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed, obviously compromising like the First Amendment completely, um, violating, I shouldn't say compromise, they violated the First Amendment. <laughs> Um, well, one of the reasons they were doing that, the government was doing that, is because they heard of these amazing like revolutions, both in France and Haiti, and a lot of slaves were liberating themselves, and they were super scared of the ideas making their way to the newly formed country and any slaves here getting getting ideas from Haiti or from French slaves. Now, this is important because Gabriel's revolt potentially reveals that that might have actually been the case. Um French and Haitian radicalism does impact the American South. Um, and and here's the thing with Gabriel's revolt. He did have two Southern white co-conspirators that were helping him. So there were people helping him that were not just uh, slaves or even other free blacks from Haiti or from coming from the other French uh, territories. He also had one French citizen also helping him with his revolt. So perhaps the fears of the, the legislators of the Alien and Sedition Acts knew what was coming. It doesn't excuse violating the First Amendment where the paint or the paint, the ink wasn't even dry on it yet. But still, um, Gabriel's revolt might be part of that. What they planned to do was to take uh, the governor at the time of Virginia, James Monroe, hostage and negotiate an end of slavery. Like that was the plan. And we're going to talk about James Monroe here in a little bit. He's going to become a president, obviously. But back then he was just the governor. What do you think of that, Nick? We don't I mean, Gabriel's revolt is not nearly as famous as as Nat Turner's or perhaps even the Stono Rebellion. We talked about a few episodes ago, but thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's a bold plan to kidnap a governor and hold him hostage. I like it. Yeah, and like. You said this one's well-known. I actually argue, I think most people don't even know about this one. Okay, all right. Like you the said, I think it does probably warrant its own episode, but that'll be another time. Yeah, the rebellion itself was postponed due to rain, um, which is a weird, <laughs> yeah, like a baseball game. Uh, but two slaves uh, uh, basically... Did they have like a doubleheader the next time? Yeah, doubleheader, like revolt. Um <laughs> that's what the historical annals seem to say. I'm sure there's other reasons. I would hope there's other reasons, but anyway... The two slaves involved in it eventually uh, told their owner, and this man's name was Mosby Shepard, about their plans. 
And it basically during this like rain out or whatever we want to talk about, that's when enough um, um, protections for, against the revolt were being implemented and they were kind of snuffed out. So Gabriel initially escaped um, before the revolt actually takes place. He clearly doesn't take James Monroe um, hostage. He escapes on a ship. Um, while he's on a ship, however, a fellow slave on the ship ends up selling him out, and he has to buy his own freedom. Um, Virginia paid only $50 um, to the slave that had sold him out. They had basically created like this, uh, you know, wanted, like wanted, we will pay you $300 if you find this, this leader of the slave revolt, Gabriel. Well, another slave did, but he only got $50, not 300. So Virginia doesn't even pay up on its like own debts. Uh, as far as an impact is concerned of this kind of revolt that didn't never really took place, Virginia bans hiring out slaves and requires free blacks to leave within 12 months or face re-enslavement. What that means essentially is since Gabriel was both literate and a blacksmith, he had like a lot of skills and that scared Virginians. So essentially they wanted to make sure less slaves got those skills. So you couldn't hire out your slaves. You had to keep your slaves on your plantation doing whatever it is they were doing. They couldn't go work in town as a blacksmith. They couldn't go whatever, work as a carpenter somewhere else. They had to stay in, in, on your plantation. And then secondly, um, if you are a free uh, black person in Virginia, you can only it was like a, a visa. You could only stay in Virginia for like 12 months and then you had to like leave or else you'd be re-enslaved. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. Actually, remember we talked about in the invention oh, of yeah, whiteness yeah, I, episode, yeah, yeah. they passed that law where if you freed your slave, like as a slave owner, you had to ensure that they were out of the country essentially in six months, I think it was. Now, amid the electoral process, that's how we're framing this, like this campaigning process, both all, all actually all candidates, all candidates, but the big ones um, like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, all kind of supported what was transpiring in Virginia. So a lot of listeners and even students in our classrooms get uh, a little upset when we fillet people uh, of the past. And one of the ones they get the most upset about um, when we fillet their character is Thomas Jefferson, especially regarding this, this topic of slavery, because it is true in some of his private letters or private discussions or in the, the writings of Thomas Jefferson, he does morally and ethically debate slavery and at times very clearly asserts that he does kind of think it's wrong. However, and I must stress, however, we always respond with, did he ever free his slaves? His own. He did not. Did he ever promote legislation or challenge what was going on in the places around him regarding slavery, the treatment of slavery, the institution, the new legislation that was being passed like in Virginia? He never did. So it's cute and nice that he's able to write these things down in private or in letters to other correspondents. Um, but in practice, the man was a slave owner and he benefited from all of all of the institution of slavery. What do you think of that, Nick? Why do so many people want to somehow protect this man's like legacy by saying, oh, he had slaves, but he didn't really want them? Well, he, well, he clearly he did. Yeah, I mean, it just exposes him as a complete hypocrite. I think it's interesting that we often, when we're looking at historical figures, well, let me backtrack on that. Historical figures whose legacy we want to hold on a pedestal for various reasons because it serves certain functions. We look at their ideas that they wrote about and like their ideal, but we don't ever, we put much less weight on their actual behavior. Like you said, Jefferson may have written all of these things, but he never pushed for legislation to end slavery. He never freed his own slaves. So it's neat that he wrote some letters, but the dude still owned slaves. Like that's the end of 
that conversation. And, it, it, and not only not only owned slaves, procreated with those slaves, yes. which is highly suspect in terms of like, 100%. again, now we're talking about sexual abuse or hypersexualization of African-American women. Like all of that comes into play here. And that's what makes this extremely problematic that people are trying to like, again, uh, you know, clear his name of any wrongdoing in this this centuries old process. Absolutely not. The man was a product of it and benefited from it. Yep. Um, as far as the 1800 election that we were discussing, it is Thomas Jefferson. The ticket is Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr uh, versus John Adams and Pinckney. Uh, Jefferson and Burr each won 73 electoral votes. Now, the reason this is important, everybody, is this is before there were changes in the process. See, Jefferson didn't like choose Aaron Burr as like his his running mate. That's not the way it worked originally. It's basically the first and second place winners, and that's how president and vice president are are chosen. So Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr basically tie. They both get 73 electoral votes, so both have a right to the presidency. And eventually the contingent election, the contingent election takes place at a lower level. Uh, well, I guess a higher level than the general population, but a lower level in the legislative branch in the House of Representatives and the House chooses Thomas Jefferson in a contingent election. I don't feel like I explained that very seamlessly. Nick, you want to help me out? Yeah, like you said, at the time, the president was whoever got the most votes and the vice president was whoever got second most votes. So there wasn't like a ticket with a vice president and a president running. In this case, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson tied. So the House decides who takes the presidency. And I just want to add, I've always thought that this system, I think we should still use it. I think it would promote less partisanship in like the executive branch. And like the elections would be so much more interesting. So aside from promoting like on his campaign ticket, like maintaining like, again, especially the Southern lifestyle, his roots, etc. He did promote some difference regarding a ideological um, change in how America was going to grow or how the United States was going to. I try not to ever use the word America. Um, that's offensive to everybody else on these continents, Peruvians and Guatemalans. But regardless. All right. How the United States was going to grow. He had this idea that we now look back. I don't think he coined this, but we call it Jeffersonian agrarianism. Agrarianism is a social philosophy uh, or political philosophy which values rural, rural society as superior to urban society and the independent farmer as superior to the paid worker and sees farming as the way of life that can shape the ideal social values. It stresses the superiority of a simpler rural life as opposed to the complexity of city life. I'm going to pause for a second and just let you know that that quote, and you don't know this, that quote I just read comes from of all sources. I'm a history guy, so I love pure sources, but this isn't one of them. Wicca Frickin'pedia. <laughs> but again, it, through my combing through a whole bunch of like looking at great definitions for agrarianism, wiki came out the best. What does that say about the democratization of information? Maybe uh, maybe we're winning a few battles here. Um. Anyway, this idea was challenging, like kind of like the Federalist power that was taking hold in the first two administrations. Now, while George Washington himself might have been somewhat agrarian, he was never like a big city guy. Like his cabinet was full of them and the Hamiltons and the Madisons and all these people, these other movers and shakers, they were really kind of not necessarily about the agrarian lifestyle. Hamilton being like foremost, but we he had his whole own episode. So you guys go back, listen to what that dude was about. Anyway, what do you think of this agrarian movement, this ideal uh, romanticized uh, and I'm using that term specifically because there would also be a literary movement in the United States that would come out of this like romanticism and things like that. 
and actually predates this a little bit, if I'm honest with you. But anyway, um, regardless, we have this idea that moving out to the country and working hard on your own farm by the sweat of your own brow would make better community because you would have like these other individuals around you all going through these shared experiences. And that's where your bonds would be made. It would also, of course, territorially expand the United States because you need lots of land to have this kind of agrarian lifestyle. Um, but yes, this kind of like simplicity being more the pure American ideal tied to rugged individualism. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with it is like this connection between that and this, the United States myth of American, I mean, of rugged individualism and like going out and claiming your stake in the frontier and this pure like idealization of the farming lifestyle and beginning to develop the ethos that's like, that's what it was to be American was to be living the rural countryside and farm for yourself and develop for yourself and like so on. And I think there's actually a lot of ties to certain movements today in the United States to, to this idea starting back then, actually. To live that lifestyle, the United States, needless to say, needed to engage further in land dispossession. Now, our immediate prior episode was on Tecumseh and... Um, and we went through that entire history, which actually some of it didn't even get started by the time we're kind of back in time a little bit in this episode. So I just want listeners to know that that's that the prior episodes happening in the context that we're building right now. But these land grabs like we can kind of see Thomas Jefferson's like purview. Here's a quote in a letter he wrote to uh, David Warden. See, it's funny how we'll use Thomas Jefferson quotes in private letters that he wrote to like try and lift up his character, but we'll ignore these. He wrote this actually in the future uh, from where we're talking about here. He wrote it on December 29th of 1813, but this was like his vision of this of how Jefferson agrarian, Jeffersonian agrarianism can come to fruition. And it required, um, honestly, the removal of Native Americans because that's where the land was going to come from. Well, when we talk about that, that's clearly colonialism by the United States. How do you practice that? In the words of Thomas Jefferson, this unfortunate race, whom we have been taking so much pain to save and to civilize, have by their unexpected desertion and ferocious barbarity justified extermination and now await our decision on their fate. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, it blows my mind that people try to defend this guy still. Clearly, like, owned slaves, clearly in writing is justifying genocide. I mean, there's no... There's no other there's, word for extermination. Yeah, I like, mean, there's like, no nice way to put this. That's what it is. Um, I mean, further, like, I mean, I'm going to take it back 11 years. Here's another good one. This is not by Jefferson, but it kind of echoes some of the lifestyle that they were after because it's from the era that we're talking about. John Quincy Adams in 1802. So right around this time period, he says, but what is the right of a huntsman to the forest of a thousand miles over which he has accidentally ranged in quest of prey? Shall the fields and valleys which a beneficent God has formed to team with life of innumerable multitudes be condemned to everlasting bareness? In fact, I probably should have read that one first. But what John Quincy Adams is after there, and of course, he's a big political uh, player at this moment in time, is 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 kind of motivating this idea that everything West is this untapped wilderness with trees and rivers and forests. But he doesn't see those as having any intrinsic or innate value. What he sees there is bareness. When he looks at beautiful, untapped like land, nature, all of that, he he sees bareness. What do you think of that? I mean, this goes so much towards the creation of the myth of the American frontier, right? 
I mean, he writes that as if literally no human has ever stepped foot in the West, which is uh, we all know is clearly untrue. And he knows it's untrue. So to to tap into that nature and to uh, kind of commit the abuses necessary that Jefferson talks about uh, about 11 years later in that quote I read in his letter to, to David Warden, um, the United States is going to enter into a new uh, Republican version of colonialism. Um, and when I say Republican, I'm not talking about the modern political party. I'm kind of talking about like the, the ideals of that he said he stood for. Before I do that, let's I mean, should we give him a little bit of like positive airplay here for a second he did deregalize the presidency he did slash military spending in comparison to both of his predecessors um he was not a big fan of partisan politics he shrunk his cabinet because i thought it was a waste of taxpayer dollars and he tried to remove the centralized debt making practices of alexander hamilton he did actually try and get rid of those he obviously didn't but he tried um, and he never recognized John Adams' midnight judges. I don't know if any of those things, um, in fact, I, no, I do 100% know none of those <laughs> things make up for, again, what he said about indigenous people or his, his slave owning, uh, tendencies. But I, do you want to fill in any, any blanks there on what positives may have come to the point where like, again, this guy's like a, a major hero face carved in mountains, even NPR's got like an hour named after him. I mean, whatever. Any yeah, thoughts? I think. The second you call for the extermination of a race of human beings, there's no coming back from that. Really. Yeah, there is a. Yeah, you can't do that. It's not like I don't know. We wouldn't do this on any other like genocidal maniacs like like record. We wouldn't like go through comb through the letters of Joseph Stalin. But look here, he really loved his mom. Like uh, like we wouldn't. Although do there that. are people that do that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Anyway, um, and, and, and yes, I get it. Before we get a comment on it, the kill count between Stalin and Jefferson is not remotely close. <laughs> I do understand that. But killing is killing. And it, it yeah, yeah, numbers are numbers. All right. So um, right back into it. Let's talk about colonialism. Now, I will tell our listeners right now, the most important form of colonialism that the United States would engage in is on their own continent in the move out west. I am not going to actually talk about that right now because the prior episode already did, and it discussed the resistance by Tecumseh. So if you feel like we need to talk about First Nations here and the colonial practices of the United States and how oppressive they were, we literally did it in the episode preceding this one. So just know that these next examples of colonialism are the United States actually getting a little bit uh, more aggressive in its colonial practices off-continent. So, um, so yeah, let's get going. Um, we get right into trouble uh, almost initially. We have what would break out as, and now historians call them, the Barbary Wars. There's actually two of them. Um, a lot of students are kind of aware they exist. I don't think people go into them in a lot of depth, and we're not either. Um, and the reason we're not is, again, wars are kind of boring. Um, it's the same thing over and over again. Here's some people killing some other people and, and that's it. I don't, I never understood like the, the attraction to military history in the United States or really in Western Europe. Now that I think about it, what, what actually, why are we so attracted to learning the details and ins and outs of every single battle that's ever taken place? Oh my God, Patton. Oh my God, MacArthur. Oh my God. Like whatever. Like why, why do we get so into that? I think it's everything to do with the fact that it's such an important part of our society and our cultural values that that's what we emphasize in our history because we still do it to this day our entire culture is built on war so of course that's what we would emphasize in our narrative 
Succinct. I like it. Um, is this the first international war of the United States? Uh, a lot of textbooks will assert that it is. However, um, again, that is just wildly incorrect and shaping a narrative that is is absolutely appalling because what that means is you're erasing all First Nations as like their own legitimate entities. So the minute Americans started fighting against Native Americans, that was international, international war. Might not be nation state versus nation state, but you are going beyond the agreed upon like universal borders or whatever globalized borders or borders of the treaty of two two treaties of Paris and attacking others. Those are wars like the Northwest War we talked about last episode. So first thing we're going to debunk right there that every textbook asserts is the Barbary Wars are not the first international war by the United States. Every violation of a treaty against the First Nations, those were the first wars of the United States. Secondly, um, let's talk about the Barbary Wars themselves. Who are they? Where are they? What are we even talking about? Um, so the Barbary Coast Wars take place on what was called by Westerners the Barbary Coast, which is the northern coast of Africa. So it's halfway around the globe here. Um, these uh, were basically... These North African Corsairs is what they were called, or pirates or whatever. These were ships, ships that were controlled by various govern, governing entities in the major cities or polities around North Africa. Around the, If we wanted to use modern-day nation-states, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya. They weren't necessarily called that at the time. And when I say like these like kind of like polities... They did, in ways, answer to like one of the big empires of the era, the Ottoman Empire, but they had an awful lot of autonomy. And in fact, the Ottoman Empire did not exert a lot of power over, over its far polities like uh, Algiers or Tripoli or Tunis. Um, what was taking place is they controlled basically southern Mediterranean trade. They were good enough on the seas that if you wanted to trade in the Mediterranean and you were an outsider, maybe a European or whatever, you had to pay them tributes to continue to trade in the Mediterranean. They had created like a monopoly along the coast there. Well, the United States decides, hey, we're our own country now. We want to get involved in international trade. And we're still working out agreements. They're going back and forth between the British and French. Um, and it's not enough. The British and French are not enough. We want to diversify our portfolio. So essentially, we're going to head into the Mediterranean as well and try and engage in this very lively uh, mercantilist network. Any commentary yet, Nick? No, I don't think so. I think it does lend a little bit of evidence to just the I don't want to say capitalism, but materialism of the Americans at this point, just seeking riches everywhere at this point. They're starting to now look outside of their own borders. Right. I want to stress that what little is ever taught about this, at least in, in my recollection when I was in school, is that, again, it is these North African um, and, and all Islamic entities that were in the wrong. They were in the wrong for daring to, like, force, like, uh, these trade agreements upon, uh, to be blunt, upon the white people, upon the Europeans, upon the Americans. Um, they were the ones that were wrong. It wasn't about the free trade. Well, here's the thing. Like, that that's not a thing that happened, like – so. I guess what I would ask is, could a, a Algerian emir, that means governor, make their way to Paris and just set up like a merchant shop like downtown and just not have to deal with any sort of government regulation and just be able to make all right. of the profit? Like the, the, the hypocrisy in economic exchange, um, especially in the Western world, and I'm picking on the Europeans here as well, not just the Americans, is is absolutely amazing to me. It is amazing to me. 
you're going to trade in these waters that are controlled by these people that have been there exponentially longer than you. And you're going to expect to do so without having to pay something. In this case, it might be tributes rather than some formalized thing on, on a piece of legislation, right? But it still serves the same exact purpose. Yeah, Europeans are not innocent. A here. level of like arrogance, right? And hypocrisy, like you said. And it's super easy. If you don't want to do it, then don't trade there. Super then don't easy. trade. Yeah. yeah. You, no one's making you go to North Africa. And here's the kicker for me. Like, this is the one that drives home the hypocrisy more than anything. The Europeans or the Americans are not innocent in any stretch of the imagination in their own colonial abuses of West Africa. Keep in mind, we're in 1800. The transatlantic slave trade is still a thing. So how dare the Europeans say that this is unfounded um, oppression or tyranny by these North African emirs and pashas? That means governors or princes. What do you think of that? The European, like, we're just going to ignore everything else going on in West Africa. And we're only going to focus <laughs> on these pirates that are making us pay tribute for our stuff. Yeah, for exactly. I mean, it's like, the, yeah, they're blinders on. Yeah. Noam Chomsky calls it what? The thief-thief philosophy where like mm -hmm. we're doing something horrible, but if we point somewhere else and, and yell thief, everyone will ignore what we're doing and go chase the thief. Like yep. it's unbelievable. Okay. So these Barbary Coast Corsairs, again, kind of operating autonomously, although in theory owe some allegiance to the, uh, the Ottoman Sultan uh, Sultanate, but again, it's super loose. Anyway, they seized U.S. Sh ships upon uh, American independence. Their rationale was, okay, well, you no longer get to qualify for the tributes or the agreements we've made with Great Britain because you left. You're your own country. You want to be recognized as your own country? Well, deal with the ramifications. We're now going to seize your ships as independent U.S. ships, not British ships. And, of course, the Americans lose their minds. In 1786, though, George Washington, they're, they're not strong enough, it's only three years since independence, does agree to start paying tributes to these Pashas to stop them from attacking American ships. So George Washington, the brave, like, I'm going to stand up for everybody, like I'm an American, like, hero and stuff, he actually uh, acquiesces. He's basically, yeah, we'll pay you. We will pay you. We will pay you Pasha's tribute. What do you make of this brave guy who's like, you know, Valley Forge and stuff like that? What do you make of that? I don't know. I'm torn between like he's an idiot and like at least in this case, he's wise in saying like, yeah, let's just pay this. That would be the easiest thing to do, you know, um, as had be already become customary by this time. If you don't remember, go back to like our Hamiltonian episode where the United States started to refuse to pay back debts, most notably to France for helping them win the American War for Independence. The United States struggled to pay off these uh, various Pashas. And by 1799, they were 140,000 U.S. dollars behind to Algiers, like the Pasha of Algiers, excuse me, and $150,000 behind to the Pashas of Tripoli. So they're close to $300,000 in debt uh, or in arrears to these, um, to these Pashas. Now, we know that what happens when you don't pay a debt back to the United States? What's going to happen? They're going to go get it. Okay, well, these Pashas are also going to operate under that philosophy. You owe us $300,000, like we're going to go get that. Okay. First war breaks out between 1801 and lasts until about 1805. Thomas Jefferson officially, like, stood up, stood his ground, and he stopped the payments to one of the Pashas. His name is Yusuf uh, Karamanli. Uh, I did not pronounce it correctly. God, my Turkish is rough right now. But anyway, he was one of the Pashas of Tripoli. And thus, he declares war. So Jefferson's like, we're not paying you anymore. You're not getting that money. 
screw you. And the Pasha's like, okay, cool, we're at war. United States <laughs> United States decides to send four frigates to the Mediterranean under the leadership of Commodore Richard Dale. And eventually, um, we have combat. The United States, or the USS Philadelphia, uh, tries to blockade Tripoli's, like, harbor. Because if you blockade the harbor, Tripoli can't engage in trade, and you're basically going to try and, like, starve them out. Unfortunately, uh, they did a poor job, and they accidentally ran aground. Um, and uh, the ship was then captured, and the crew was taken prisoner. So the first, uh, you know, real major U.S. naval engagement in international waters goes rather poorly. Um, but this is where we get... A American military hero, Stephen Decatur, comes to the rescue. He sneaks up um, on into the harbor on disguised ships, ends up burning the USS Philadelphia to prevent the Corsairs from having it, question mark? Like, I've gone through the history of this on new, from numerous sources, everything from generic sources like Wikipedia to, like, in-depth historical sources— and everyone just says, like, this was so that the Corsairs couldn't have it, and this makes him a hero. Like, burning the boat so that your enemy can't have the boat that's already run aground? How does this make him a hero? I don't understand. Like, are we just really reaching to manufacture what heroic actions are? I, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, he, whatever. He burns the ship. Cool. Good job, guy. Um, The War of Attrition on the Seas... Uh, turns a little. William Eaton, an American, ends up leading 500 mercenaries that he had recruited uh, basically in Egypt, so just, just a little bit further east. Um, and these mercenaries are like a Greek, some are Arab, um, and some of them are like American Marines. And he basically marches them from Egypt and does capture a city called Derna in 1805. So that's kind of an interesting story of Will Eaton. He kind of creates this like international force of everyone that's mad at the Pashas, and then they go and capture a city called Derna in 1806. Anyway, the first treaty that is signed between after after Will Eaton captures the city, it's a, there's a treaty signed between the United States and these Pashas, is that the United States will pay $60,000 for its prisoner, and Tripoli will stop um, basically capturing or forcing the tributes. So I don't know. It kind of ends with maybe the United States getting a little bit more of what they want. I don't know. The second war breaks out um, years later, about a decade later in 1815, when Algiers, Algerian Corsairs, um, kept, because they didn't sign that first treaty, they kept um, attacking the U.S. Uh, ships. And the United States was clearly uh, distracted with what we talked about earlier in the prior episode, Tecumseh and the War of 1812. Well, by 1815, things have, uh, have calmed down. The United States wants to engage again. Stephen Decatur, from 10 years earlier, is kind of now in charge of the fleet. He goes on to capture two uh, Algerian ships, and eventually the Regency of Algeria uh, negotiates an end, and there were very few casualties in the Second War. The treaties insinuate a mutual, mutual understanding between the United States and the Islamic world, even friendship. I'm going to pause for just one second. Again, when you go through the treaties, there are certain pieces of language in there saying that perhaps the United States and the Islamic world, which is large, obviously, it's much more, it's territorially and much more diverse than the United States is. So, you know, it includes East, Southeast Asia, Middle East, North Africa, uh, parts of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all over the place. Anyway, but this treaty insinuates that there will be a permanent mutual understanding, again, I'm going to repeat it again, between the United States and the Islamic world. All the way back in 1815, uh, obviously fast forward to 2020, we, we, we know what happened there, but the fact that there was like this opportunity back in 1815, what do you think of that? What, what, how did we not follow through on our end of the deal there? Because that's what we do. 
mm-hmm. does not follow through on our ends of deals. That's the history of the United States in a nutshell. I'm sure there are some listeners freaking out. But but what about what about 2001? Well, the United States had already broken that long before 2001. So, um, mm-hmm. okay. So moving forward. That is like the first like attempt that not the first, but it is one of the initial attempts at Republican style colonialism um, during the era that we're talking about. And again, this is all in addition to what's happening in the First Nations. Further, tying the two together, more U.S. colonialism will take place um, when Thomas Jefferson is able to exploit what's going on in Europe. France needs money for its war on tyranny and its later Napoleonic wars. And we all know where we're going with this. This is one of the few things in Myth is America that I'm assuming everyone listening has heard of. It is called the Louisiana Purchase. And since everyone has learned about this, I am not going to spend a whole lot of time at all on it. Basically, in 1803, the United States gives $15 million for an untold amount of land. Even though most maps have like that on there now, that's in retrospect. We look at what the United States seized. At the time, it was kind of just a rough estimate. Um, this is now, and these are my literal notes that I would even use in class, for example, this is the umpteenth time that whites have sold indigenous land as a preemptive strike to conquest and dispossession. So this is, again, this uh, purchase as negotiated between the United States and France and uh, to a lesser degree, Spain's kind of watching from the sidelines is basically the selling of land that, that none have a rightful claim to. They're selling off indigenous land in this time, in this case, millions and millions of acres that are not theirs to sell. Why did Napoleon do it? He needed money um, for his wars. Plus, he was dealing with the revolution in Haiti and he was at war with the English. Um, However, the Native Americans clearly are going to end up upset. And like I said, Spain watching from the sidelines, they're a little bit pissed, too, because what France provided them on the continent was a little bit of a buffer between what they saw as the ultra-aggressive Americans and 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 themselves, like their main territories, like in the American Southwest um, or in um, South America. They were worried that the Americans, based on their behavior, would eventually come in, come to blows with Spain. And they're right. It takes a little longer, but eventually the United States and Spain do go to war. So they were right. We have the Spanish-American War in 1898. Um, That was already after Spain had lost a lot of its territories due to independence movements, but still, they were right. The United States never stops taking. Um, And this is evidence of that. Thoughts, Nick? No, I think your point is valid about, like, they're selling land that isn't even theirs. It's like, I don't know why people can't understand this concept, because it's super simple. It's like, if I come to you and say, hey, do you want to buy your neighbor's house from me? Like, you would be like, it's not your house, right? But back then, like, not a thing. They're like, hey, you want to buy this land that's not really ours? Oh, sure, here's $15 million. All right, now it's ours. And then they just continue to wipe out the people that already live there. It's just ridiculous. Um. Well, once what's done is done in terms of the uh, 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 colonial powers, I suppose. And after the agreement and payments are made, Thomas Jefferson ends up sending out an expedition to explore this new territory, um, which is the infancy infancy of what we would eventually call Manifest Destiny. Again, that 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 specific term has not been coined yet. That will be in future episodes when we actually do coin that term. But this is kind of its infancy. 
Um, and this is where we start to see the manufactured myth, and Nick's brought it up a couple of times in the last two episodes, of the West, like this Western mythology, this frontiersman, uh, the miners and the cowboys and the blah, 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 everything that has become, again, this ultra-romanticized mythology of the West. It is nothing like what we see in Hollywood films or in comic books or whatever, or cartoons. It's nothing like that. And yet it still perseveres as the American West. And it's kind of interesting. It's not just here in the United States. I mean, you see this all over the world. This mythology of the American West makes its way to like Japan and South Korea and like John Wayne movies being played in South America. Like it is like this complete mythology. But this is where it begins. This is exactly where it begins with this first expedition um, by, of course, the very famous Meriwether Lewis and John Clark. Their expedition lasts between 1803 and 1806. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them since it is one of the pieces of U.S. history I do feel like most listeners are very well aware of. There are entire like reenactments of this every year. It's super popular in American history. Um, they start in St. Louis, and they end up going to the Pacific Ocean and have numerous adventures. Rah, rah, rah. They deal with Spanish raiders. raiders. They uh, end up uh, meeting an indigenous slave woman named Sacagawea, uh, and there's debate about the nature of the relationship that really took place there. But regardless... Most people are aware of the expedition, so we're going to kind of keep moving here. In theory, if I can find. I do think though it. that like the Lewis and Clark example is a really good example of how we make heroes in this myth that is the history of the United States that serve very specific functions, right? So mm -hmm. these two men and they're the other men that went with them and women actually. Mm -hmm. Right. The whole myth is that they went and discovered this undiscovered land and like they were up against these. But like people were already there. In fact, if you really dig into the story, there's so many times when they like come upon indigenous people and they're like, we're going to follow the Missouri River to the Pacific Ocean. And the indigenous people are like, yeah, it doesn't go to the Pacific Ocean. It ends in the Rockies. And they're like, it like people already lived there and already knew everything about that land. Right. This is just the white people that are going out to discover it. And they're like, not the, even the first white people. Yeah. The Spaniards had already explored. Coronado made his way all the way up through like Colorado and stuff. And yeah. basically he said he reported back to the Spanish crown. Like, what was that? Like 300 years earlier? Like, right. you know, there's no reason to like heavily or densely settle this area because the water is not going to be a thing. And I only like that quote because or that paraphrase. That is not a direct quote from Coronado. <laughs> But I really like that quote because, I mean, if you look at, like, the fastest growing communities in the United States today, they're all in the American West. Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, these are the fastest mm -hmm. growing territories, and we're out of water now. Like, so Coronado foresaw, and I don't even like Coronado because he's a bad dude, but whatever. He even foresaw, like, come on, jackasses. There's no reason to be here. Like, yeah. anyway. But I think people need to understand that, like, yes, Lewis and Clark went and explored this area, but people are already living there. And the reason that we make heroes out of them is because it fits a very specific function within the mythical narrative of the country. Not because they actually did anything that was really exceptional. Human beings had already done it. Absolutely. Um, there's a cool quote from uh, a historian named Lott at this point. It says, he says that what Lewis and Clark uh, found, found, was not a wilderness but a vast pasture managed by and for Native Americans. So it was not untapped, like the John Quincy Adams quote that we read earlier, um, that this, that it was intentionally left as pristine as possible because the way of life and the interconnectedness that these individuals felt with their immediate environment and the flora and fauna and everything around it needed to remain as pristine as possible to perpetuate, and this goes back to circular tribalism. If you don't know, check out other, other videos on our channel, what circular tribalism is, to promote this 
reciprocal relationship between humanity and the greater world around it. And they understood, and we use the term now, sustainability. That's what we like to talk about. But these people understood sustainability before there was even a word for it. And that's what we see in this quote, that these things were left intact, not because these individuals did not know how to manipulate the land or didn't want to have industry or anything or progress. They understood that those things are not sustainable. And that leads to a trajectory of unsustainability. Anyway. Well, I think it's important to note that by using the rhetoric that these are all like un, whatever, untapped resources, it completely minimizes the agency and the humanity of the indigenous peoples that already live there. Because you're not talking about how, well, they have these advanced societies and they have chosen consciously to leave this land undeveloped and this land slightly developed and to live off the land in this way. Instead, it's just, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. So we're going to come in and do it. But like, that's the not thing. the real story. We have historical evidence that indigenous people did know how to do more and yeah. failed just like we fail and chose to go back. Cahokia is one of the great examples just outside St. Louis. That was a society that rose up in hierarchical structure and exploitation and used more resources than it could, and it failed. It collapsed, and then the survivors and the legacy they brought with them went on to say, hmm, maybe that's not a direction that we should go, and they went back to more circular ways of thinking, knowing, and learning. Right. The oscillation back and forth between rigid hierarchical large settlements and more loose seasonal types of gatherings and so on reveals such a more complex social mm -hmm. environment that the indigenous peoples lived very clearly. Uh, but it becomes completely minimized in the mythical way that we tell the story of the establishment of the West. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the other overlooked colonial expeditions of the era uh, in comparison to um, to Lewis and Clark is the expedition of Zebulon Pike. Now, he's not overlooked um, for myself or Nick, given our geographic locale, but I do think he's overlooked um, nationally and internationally. Um, as far as Pike, Zebulon Pike is concerned, in 1806, he went on, he, his goal, he was tasked, he's a military man, he's tasked with going to find the head of the Arkansas and Red Rivers. Um, ooh, I missed a note on, on, on Clark, but or regardless, let's keep moving. Um, in 1806, he was charged with going to find the headwaters of the Arkansas and Red Rivers. He was also tasked as a military uh, man to spy on the Spanish and explore the possibility of acquiring more land from them somehow. So I want to stress that all the way back in 1806, the United States military was already thinking of how it could eventually acquire what we now know as Mexico. Um, again, this is before the Mexican-American War. That's still three, shoot, four decades in the future at this point. All the way back in 1806, American military was already looking about how it could acquire Mexico. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it just gives us an example of where their mind's at already. Like you said, four decades ahead of uh, the actual event, they're already thinking about conquest and how they can spread further. He goes on to capture um, some Osage hostages, so he captures Native Americans and forces them um, to be his guides. Again, this is against their will. These are guides that did not choose to be Pike's guides. He is basically making them guide at gunpoint. 
And he guides them into southern Colorado and into other Spanish territory, knowing full where where full knowing full well where he was, that he had clearly danced outside of the generally agreed upon borders of what the French sold the Americans, and he is clearly now in Spanish territory. Um, the reason this is important is what we think was taking place, or what some historians assert was taking place, is that he is surveying the opportunity of an invasion of southern Colorado starting in Southern Colorado and ending obviously wherever it would end as they enter into Mexico. Um, which again, it's, it's wild. We're doing a whole episode of course on the Mexican American war in the very near future. But regardless, one of the things that's popular in the, the world today in the United States, um, political atmosphere is this idea about immigration and building walls and so on and so forth. I cannot stress this enough. Literally, where good portions of us are standing, or you, I will say you, not us, I'm not, I don't want to be accused of this, where a lot of these Americans are standing, was Mexico. They're making these arguments against immigration from territory that was essentially or eventually um, basically annexed by the United States against Mexico's will. Especially in places like Southern Colorado, Arizona, um, Arizona in particular, there is like a wild and rabid like border security, like culture there and it's just absolutely appalling it is absolutely appalling that you have the balls to stand on stolen land not just stolen from mexico but stolen from first nations and to just have the political views and biases and want to exert yourself the way you do in military action along this quote-unquote border it is absolutely obscene uh that's a tangent i could probably go on and on but i must stress if we go back to the history that kind of inspired this tangent 1806, United States was already looking at ways that it could annex Mexico. Um, so, any thoughts, Nick? Nah, if I get started on that tangent, then it's going to be a long episode. Yeah, like it is a tangent, and you know, it needs to be flushed out further, and it will be in the Mexican American War episode. So, okay. Anyway, Pike's already pushing into Mexico. Um, he published his own findings, of course, in the, uh, the, the title, if you ever read it. It's super boring. It's his journey. <laughs> the Expeditions of Zebulon Pike. Um, and he further romanticizes the colonial rationale of the West and his adventures there. And it, 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 it is wildly popular during his time. It is a popular seller um, all along like the Midwest and the East Coast. And it motivates more and more people to want to come, of course, out to the frontier and try their luck as an adventurer. And then eventually we know it's not just going to be as an adventurer. It's to get land. And then eventually it's to get minerals when we start having you know, gold rushes and so, so on and so forth. I think it should have had a subtitle like The Expeditions of Zebulon Pike, How I Almost Climbed a Mountain. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His peak, his peak is looking over us these days. Um, okay. It's funny anyway, every time I don't know, I've climbed Pike's Peak. I don't know, twenty times or something. Every time I think about how he didn't make it, and yeah, <laughs> it's still named after him. Not that yeah. it's easy. Like in the winter, that's a ridiculous climb, but still, like you didn't make it, you never did, and it's still named after you. I gotta give you credit, man. I've only driven it, but yeah, not a hiker. Anyway, okay, as far as discoveries are concerned, further discoveries by the Americans in this territory is is they are revealed to a new massive First Nation um, um, confederacy, that of uh, the Comanche or Comancheria, and of course the Osage Nations. These massive confederacies that, and when I say massive, I'm not talking just like population, I'm talking like territorially um, in terms of like 
uh, ideological or material impact. These are massive like confederacies in the Americans, uh, like, eh, I guess I could say Southwest, but just like, just to the east of the Southwest. So like, yeah, like Oklahoma, Texas, like these regions here, North Mexico. What they sought to do rather than formally or militarily occupy the Osage nations or Comanchery or the Comanche nations was to create economic de dependency a la the Ohio Valley example that we talked about in the last episode with Tecumseh. Um, to basically forcefully civilize these groups and assimilate them until they could conquer them because they didn't have the means to conquer them in 1806 and stuff like that. That would take longer. But before they were able to, just like with the five nations of the South as well, they would attempt to basically, this is their word, not mine, civilize them. Um, they would send them white tools. They would send them alcohol, of course. We know about that forced dependency. They would uh, promote um American cultural values in these Native Americans. So in other words, they would basically, their gender division of labor would take place. So for example, the gifts they would give, they would specifically give spinning wheels for women Native Americans and give plows for male Native Americans. So to stop the men from being hunters and get the women in the home. These were the gifts given specifically to the Comanche and Osage nations. Um... Basically, to change them from the to a more agrarian and manageable lifestyle, and it frees them from like their nomadic habits. This would be ripe for eventual plunder, though, for the Americans. Why would making like the Comanche and Osage nations basically change these like their 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 work and consumption habits? How would this be ripe for eventual plunder by the Americans when they do get down into Oklahoma, Texas, North Mexico? I mean, first, it creates a dependency on the quote unquote American way of life. But I think the most important thing is it turns them into docile bodies, basically, by having them abandon their traditional lifestyle and sort of like, I don't want to say lose their skills, but become skilled in these this other way of living. It makes it essentially impossible for them to go back. For sure. For sure. It's during this time that we are going to like back in Washington, we're going to transition into the James Madison pres presidency, which is really just more of the same. Um, he kind of followed a lot in Jefferson's footsteps in, in many ways. Um, it, it, I, I should say this, though, about James Madison. We've picked on him a lot in past episodes. He was definitely a Federalist at one point. By now, I will stress that he has switched. He's flipped to Democratic Republican. He is no longer a Federalist. He broke with Hamiltonian economics, those types of things. So he's actually flipped. He did not like what was taking place under the first two executive branches, to be blunt. Um, I don't know if you want to add any commentary to James Madison, like flip-flopping a little bit here. I don't see it. I'm not a Madison fan under any auspices, um, as you, as everybody probably can imagine based on our podcast. But um, one thing I would not critique him for is flip-flopping. A lot of people are critiqued for that. But it, when people talk about flip-flopping, in my opinion, it's like, well, when new information is introduced and you choose to like stand by like your old antiquated ways of thinking, you're the idiot. Why would you not change or evolve your ideologies or thought processes when new information is presented to you. I, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on flip-flopping? I, I think it's weird that people get upset when people flip-flop. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that just like you put it, when new information comes or you become more educated or more informed on some topic yeah. and you have a more informed opinion, like why would you be chastised for that? It makes no sense. Yeah, his presidency lasts between 1809 and 1870, 1817. Again, he changes very little in the uh, United States dialectic um, at this point in time. Even though he is a major mover and shaker, being the author of the Constitution and stuff, he doesn't change a, a whole lot during his presidency. Um, he goes on to create, I suppose, um, 
the Embargo Act. Well, he doesn't create. He passes. He Congress passes and he signs the Embargo Acts. Engages in the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, he's part of like the Second Bank of the United States. I guess those are still somewhat like Federalist things that he's doing there. But I think that's just because again that that Rolling Stone or that snowball effect has already taken place from starting with Washington, going to Adams, going to Jefferson. At this point, the executive branch is just ballooning in terms of its like impact and power, which is never which which again when we're talking about the author of the Constitution himself, this is it was never supposed to be this way. It was literally supposed to be a a checks and balances system between three powers but by by the time we get to Madison the executive branch is 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 over the other two and I think we see that even as far as 2020 as the executive branch continues to balloon and balloon and exert its power over time right it's 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 out of control but anyway it was already out of control by the time we got to James Madison further overlooked in James Madison's presidency is the role of Dolly oftentimes um she's famous most people are aware of Dolly Madison but they're not aware of how important she was um, to political life at the time. This doesn't have anything to do with colonialism, but I would feel completely remiss um, to not at least mention her because, again, the American history is chock full of white dudes, and I would get tired of talking about white dudes, so let's talk about a woman. Um, Dolly, of course, was James's wife, and she was noted for her um, political acumen and her politicking throughout Washington, D.C. She would hold these, like, awesome parties, um, and she would basically, like, if you wanted to be somebody, you would have to get to one of Dolly's parties, get to know her, and she would actually be, like, this puppeteer of all of these other so-called powerful men and getting them to, like, kind of go back and forth and influence them, and eventually she could get you you as the proposed whatever politician, whatever you wanted. But what you needed was a what was called a calling card signed by Dolly. So if you had this like calling card and you wanted to get some legislation passed or you wanted to get elected to a certain position, you had to have this calling card uh, signed by Dolly Madison. And this is how you would get what you want. This became like somewhat of a currency in the Capitol. What do you think of that, Nick? That her ability, her political acumen and her ability to negotiate and and kind of like just basically run circles politically around these very powerful men is often overlooked. No, I think it's a super cool part of this time in history that, like you said, is often overlooked. Most people don't know about. But yeah, she the, I mean, there are now, but there should be books written about her. People should learn about her in K through 12 and et cetera. The fact that they don't is just further making history about white dudes that's sucks she's the first first lady i don't want to like be a you know downplay the role of martha washington who also threw parties and stuff or abigail adams who we've already spent an entire episode she got her own episode for being like you know an absolute amazing person and advocating for women's rights long before anybody else was in the united states but as far as like a first lady, the way we see them as kind of like the face of the executive branch, like out there in the public, she was that. And there's a couple of reasons. First, her political acumen that we already talked about. Secondly, Jefferson didn't have a first lady. So like, I guess the American public was missing that for uh, a few terms there. Um, and then um, set th third, James Madison, as important a player as he is, was not really ever into being a public figure himself. So so Dolly kind of took on all of those roles. And she does. She becomes the face of the executive branch. So I did want to give her a shout out before we get back into um, colonial aggression by the United States. So let's do that. Um, right now, during this time period in, 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 in um, the first term of James Madison, 1812, is where we would see the Tecumseh Wars 
the Creek Wars, and the War of 1812. Those were all discussed in the prior episode. And again, I've said this for, this is now the third time, go back and listen to that if you want to see the colonial process at play regarding First Nations. I want to move, though, to some different parts of, of what need to be discussed here just after the Madison presidency. The first is the Missouri Compromise. So while this is not directly, people don't frame this as like colonial, it actually is. This is the newly established nation in its newly established territory that it has claimed now dictating the political and demographic makeup of its territory, which is colonialism. What do you think? No, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. No one talks about this being like a colonial act, but it's a super important it's super important to view it through that lens because you're right. That's exactly what it is. At least some form of like whatever you want to call it, imperialism, colonialism, something, but it's imposing this American way of life. Yeah. I mean, to sum up the Missouri Compromise, which I do think uh, regarding myth is America, I do think people are aware of its existence, but I don't think they ever, they're ever ever framed in a colonial mindset. In some Missouri, uh, the territory, obviously, it's admittance as a slave state, and that's what it wanted to be, a slave state which will come into play when we get to the Mexican-American War as well. Uh, believe it or not, Missouri does play a role. But anyway, Missouri's admittance as a slave state required Maine, another state, to be admitted to maintain the balance of power between North and South in the Senate. Most people are aware of that. That's not mind-blowing. That's not part of myth as America by any stretch. That's not myth. That, that happened. Um, what it also does, though, is it prohibits slavery north of the 36-degree uh, the uh, 30 parallel to save basically Missouri. Excuse me. Let me repeat all of that. I did not spit that out well. Basically, Missouri would be the only state north of that parallel that could preserve the institution of slavery. Make sense? Mm -hmm. In my second second go around there. Okay. As far as controversy is concerned, Northern critics objected to the expansion of slavery into the Louisiana Purchase Territory on constitutional inequality of the three-fifths rule. We've already spent time talking about the three-fifths rule. At this point, I feel like that was six or seven episodes ago during the, the constitutional episode. But regardless, the three-fifths rule or three-fifths compromise. Um, the moral reasons for Northerners are debatable. I want to reiterate that in different language. Long story short, what I'm saying here is Northern Northerners did criticize the fact that Missouri gets to be a slave state and slavery is expanding, but it was not for moral reasons that they were upset. It was because of the representation that would take place in the legislative branch. That's what they were upset about. Thoughts? Yep, I think that's key. Oftentimes we're left thinking that like, all northerners were like opposed from slavery from day one and like that's what the civil war was about and like all this stuff and like most of that narrative is complete nonsense like you said this specific case all they care about is like the political ramifications of missouri joining the union it has nothing to do with like the moral aspects of slavery right. Yeah, the North is racist, people. Like, it's racist through the Civil War. It was racist after the Civil War. We cannot, like, the South get, is famous for it because I guess there's no hiding the racism down there. But the, the North is just as racist. And perhaps this more clandestine, subversive racism of the North might even be more damaging. Um, sociologists do debate between the two. Um, but again, look no further than, like, what are some good examples? Yes, riots break out during the Civil Rights period. But the riots break out in Newark, New Jersey and Detroit, Michigan. That's the North people. Uh, well, was it last year boston was just rated most racist city in america like over atlanta or decatur or whatever like mobile like yeah so i mean it's a thing it's a thing 
Okay. Yeah, I'm not letting the South off the hook, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think this whole like North-South in terms of like some sort of moral or ethical discussion, I think mm-hmm. that is is completely obfuscated. Both are morally and ethically. Yeah. Well, and the fact that the whole story of the Civil War becomes this moral like battle is also completely ridiculous. And like that's what lends to us thinking that like well the northerners were morally correct and the southerners were like they were unethical and like when we start speaking in terms of morality and ethics like we've lost what the war was actually really about like yes were there some people fighting because they were against slavery obviously that's true but that's not the full story and i think it's so oversimplified right right there were clearly there was clearly an abolition movement we're not saying there wasn't but that was actually a minority of white people. It, like the majority were not part of the abolition movement, contrary to popular belief. So yes, we would like to celebrate the John Browns and the William Lloyd Garrisons and the Grimke sisters and these these quote unquote white advocates for abolition. We we do, but they're not the majority. That's why there's only a handful of them that I can name. Like so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um. All right. This does divide the nation along sectarian lines a little bit, and we can call all the way back to the very famous Mason-Dixon line between Pennsylvania and Maryland regarding, like, policies there. The Kansas and Nebraska Act, as far as legislation, effectively repealed what took place back in, 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 in uh, was officially, excuse me, the Kansas-Nebraska Act effectively repealed this legislation in 1854 that i'm not going to talk about yet because that's like pre-civil war stuff and that that kind of guides us towards the civil war but i want you to know that this this compromise and mason dixon stuff is going to end up being like more or less overwritten in 1854 and then of course we get the later dred scott versus the sanford where if if if, i mean yes it makes it all unconstitutional you don't get the citizenship dred scott case Again, I'm just kind of trying to preview where we're going to go in the future here. But I want to get back to the Missouri Compromise in terms of colonial impact. What we see here is the United States continuing to expand its territory, exert its control over this territory. And then, of course, this is where we get like the the kind of like the organization of things or like this this creation of borders, this very positivist mindset as colonial. Can you make that connection better for me as the sociologist here, how this very positivist mindset makes its way and reveals itself in the Missouri Compromise and is part of colonialism? I know that's a lot I'm asking of you, but you're a good-ass sociologist, so I think you can do it. Yeah, I think this is, it demonstrates this sort of tendency i guess specifically in the united states in this era to basically divide things up and categorize them and start to essentially taxonomize the land and the political policies and the people themselves and put people into categories essentially so they're easier to manage right people my students and like we debate this all the time we're like well it's just human tendency to put things into categories like okay fine but that's not why like the politicians and the leaders at the time are doing it, right? They're not like, oh, well, I instinctually as like a primal human put things in categories, so here's Missouri. Like, that's not how it works, right? They're doing it very specifically so that they can more easily rule over this geographical territory and the inhabitants of that territory. And it just lends itself more to the expansionist nature of the people that are leading the United States at this time and the citizens themselves. That was good. Love it. 
Okay, so as we move on from the Missouri Compromise, I want to get into um, the eventual like rise and presidency of James Monroe, mostly because, again, I don't care about James Monroe uh, or really any president. They're all equally problematic for their own various reasons, but because I want to talk about um, a very important piece of legislation that comes from, uh, from the Monroe era. Um, but before I do that, I want to get again into this dude's mindset regarding, again, we're at it, colonialism. This is what he had to say about like the territorial land grabs and dispossession that were taking place um, as of 1817. And he wrote this letter to a dude named Andrew Jackson. And we know about this dude and he's going to take this to a whole new level uh, shortly. But before he does, he hears from James Monroe here on October 5th of 1817. He says the hunter or savage state requires a greater extent of territory to sustain it than is compatible with the progress and just claims of civilized life and must yield to it. Nothing is more certain than if Indian tribes do not abandon that state and become civilized, they will decline and become extinct. The hunter state, though maintained by warlike spirit, presents but feeble resistance to the more dense, compact, and powerful population of civilized man. What do you think of that? Oh my god, there's so much in there. The use of the term civilized extensively. like So his, his categories here, right, are the hunter state and the more civilized man, right? And the hunter state, even though it's warlike, basically presents no opposition to this civilized way of life. And there's so much like this is neither of our expertise, but we love talking about this, like the I, the, the impact of geography here and land and how it's talked about and sort of the discourse yep. that surrounds it. Right. So his specific words are this hunter state requires much more land in order to sustain itself than our more civilized way of being. So ours is better because like. It's nonsense. Well, yeah, it requires more land because they're not completely pillaging the environment. Like, weird, you know? Yeah, so much there. Such an asshole. I like that quote because while it references his feelings on indigenous peoples, it will. it's also a good precursor to how his way of thinking would end up more or less culminating in what we now know as the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Because mm-hmm. he'll kind of like transpose those thoughts beyond Native Americans, and he'll transpose them on all of Latin America. Um, the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, if we're blunt, is a very thinly veiled excuse for American colonialism in Central and South America. Um, and that's really what it is. A, apologists can like argue that Monroe's heart was in the right place, that he really wanted these newly forming countries to be independent after they won their independence from Spain. And so, uh, no, I mean, just like the, the, the Truman Doctrine or the Bush Doctrine, later doctrines that basically followed in the same footsteps, it is about American aggressive territorial expansion or economic expansion through use of military force. That's what these doctrines are about. And this is where we see the executive branch gaining more and more clout over the other. Uh, this isn't like the, the Congress of 1823 doctrine. This is the Monroe doctrine. These are presidential decrees. This is the executive branch seizing more power. That's really what it is. Okay. This sets the stage, the final stage for the coinage of what we would call manifest destiny. To provide a context of Monrovian, like, uh, again, expansionist policy, uh, let me give some just a little bit of context. So beginning with uh, maybe the United States itself and its war for independence from 1776 to 1783, numerous territories in North and South America had started to break off from their colonial motherlands. The United States kind of kicked this thing off. So I guess we'll give them a little bit of credit there. 
Next, of course, we know during the French Revolution, one of its um, colonies had a slave revolt led by, well, not just slaves, but also free blacks um, and maroons and so on and so forth, called the Haitian Revolution. They established their independence and their newly formed country of Haiti as well. This then, these ideologies then spread uh, to the southern United States, which led to slave revolts that we started this episode with, but also into Latin America, where more and more revolts were taking place. In fact, we can date some revolts all the way back to like Tupac Amaru in Peru, Peru trying to separate from the colonial powers there. What was that 1796 or something along those lines? I don't know. Correct me in the comments if I'm wrong on that one. But regardless, independent movement, independence movements throughout Central and South America had already been taking place, whether they were by um, indigenous peoples, whether they were by um, uh, disenfranchised um, colonials themselves, just like with the American War for Independence. These were basically pure Spanish people that for some reason were still answering to the crown and no longer wanted to. They thought like, just like the Americans, like, why are we connected to you? We have all the resources we need here. So like there were numerous independence movements in Latin and South America, and they deserve their own episodes. And and I do love Latin American revolutionary history. So in a different series, maybe revolutionary history, we'll be talking about some of these. But to, for our purposes here, I want to kind of go through the countries that eventually did gain their independence, sometimes because indigenous people were leading, sometimes because honestly, even in some cases, Catholic priests were leading, like in Mexico, or sometimes um, because like, again, wealthy colonists no longer wanted to answer to the crowns back in Europe. It's a mi mixed bag of colonial or anti-colonial revolutions that take place. Mexico kicks us off in 1821. Eventually, they gain their independence. It is one of the great wars for independence in, in, in Western history. It deserves an entire episode. Heroes like Hidalgo and the marching from Dolores. And it's it's such a, 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 a revolution. I shouldn't call it revolution. The Mexican Revolution and the Mexican, Mexican War for Independence are two very different things. It's such a war for independence with so many like amazing like narratives and stories. And, and it is. It's highly romanticized, but I do kind of like that one. Um, Brazil. Uh, separating from Portugal in 1822, Grand Colombia separating from Spain in 1822, Peru separating from Spain in 1824, Bolivia in 1825, Uruguay from Brazil, so Uruguay is part of Brazil, but then separates from Brazil in 1828, uh, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, all of these places then eventually separate from what we called Gran Colombia in 1830. And then of course, Mexico would go on to have some of its southern parts separate off on their own, like Guatemala and Honduras and Nicaragua and Costa Rica, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But long story short, we have all of these nations now in Central and South America basically going through what the United States had eh, five decades earlier and now trying to come into their own, establish a government, an economy, um, set up defense, all of the things that are very difficult to do early on as a brand new, fresh baby country. What do you think, Nick? Anything we're missing? No, I don't think so. There's United so much States? in this period that like, we're yeah. going to have to gloss over for now, obviously, but... Well, There's yeah, the revolutionary there. period throughout, or the independence yeah. period throughout Latin America. Again, these are two different things. I need to be clear. Independence mm -hmm. period in Latin America is fascinating. It is fascinating. Okay, anyway, the Americans are watching all of this take place, um, and they're licking their lips. Let me be blunt. Um, without Spanish protection, it, it's, yeah, America is going to be the player here, and they are now going to be the new colonial influence on these territories. And they're going to do so under the auspices of keeping them safe from other colonizers. 
That's the Monroe Doctrine, that we will be the influence over these. And we won't necessarily like just like start marching in there like they did, but we will dictate your economic policies. We'll dictate your political policies. We'll even help you choose your leaders. Like th that's what the Monroe Doctrine is about. It is a softer form of colonialism. Can we call it that? Under I, mean, I, liken it, I liken it to like the mafia, right? Like we're the mafia and you need to hire us to protect you from the mafia. And you're like, what? Like, it, yeah. So there are like four main points with the Monroe Doctrine, rather than me reading this entire boring ass document. The four main points are to preserve a new way of life for all of these recently independent Latin American nations. And the four main points are the U.S. will not interfere with Europe, interfere with Europe. OK, well, that has nothing to do with Latin America. Why is that the first main point? Secondly, the U.S. would not interfere with existing colonies in the hemisphere. So if you have not won your independence yet, the United States will not help you. Okay, fine. Third, the Western Hemisphere is now closed to all future colonization. That's a big one. The United States is now asserting under the Monroe Doctrine that no other colonizer is allowed on this hemisphere, North or South America. What do you think of that? It's bold. It is bold. Um, and it basically is asserting that who is the one running the show here. By me even making this doctrine, this is assuming some sort of authority over everyone else on the two continents. Yep, 100%. Which is and ridiculous he, because Spain, if anyone had a claim to dominance, it would have been Spain at the time. Right. Any attempt by Europe to oppress any nation in the hemisphere would be considered a hostile act against the United States. So let's say France does come back and like whatever tries to, I don't know, invade, let's make up something, Venezuela. For some reason, France decides it's going to invade Venezuela. The United States would see that as an aggressive, aggressive act against the United States. I mean, just that, that one point makes all of the territory sort of a de facto colony of the United States. Because at the very least, the United States is like the big brother that's ensuring their protection. Right. Even if they don't want it, like the Monroe Doctrine is going to make that policy, you know. So I'm going to read an excerpt here. This is wildly important. This does come from the doctrine, but I think there's some things that I, I, we need to, like, again, blame here. We owe it, therefore, to candor and to the amicable relations existing between the United States and those powers to declare that we should consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety. Pause. Break that down, sociologist. Uh, I mean, it's like, it, it's so weird that this is written into like this law, right? Because it's, it, it's talking about basically ideological conflict and different ways of lives, different ways of living, coming into contact with one another and what's going to happen when that takes place. With the existing colonies or dependencies of any European power, we have not interfered and we shall not interfere. But with the governments who have declared their independence and maintained it and whose independence we have in great, on great consideration and on just principles, on just principles, of course, acknowledged we could not view any interposition for the purpose of oppressing them or controlling in any other manner their destiny by any European power in any other light than is the manifestation of an unfriendly disposition towards the United States. So if you come down here, you're, 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 you're screwing with us. 
in the war between those new governments in Spain, we declared our neutrality at the time of their recognition, and to this we have adhered, and shall continue <laughs> to adhere, provided no change shall occur, which, in the judgment of the competent authorities of this government, shall make a corresponding change on the part of the United States indispensable to their security. Basically, we are going to keep them safe. It is our job now to keep them safe. Oh my God, this gives the United States so much power over the rest of the Americas. Well, also, it says in there, right? Okay, cool. You've all got your independence. Now nothing can change. If anything changes now, then like we're going right. to step in, right? Yeah. But in regard to these continents, circumstances are eminently and conspicuously different. It is impossible that the allied powers should extend their political system to any portion of either continent without endangering our peace and happiness. Nor can anyone believe that our southern brethren, if left to themselves, would adopt it of their own accord. Yeah. So when we take this language, which sounds again like just like the United States is, is championing the independence of these Latin Americans, just like the United States is fighting the evils of communism throughout the Cold War, or just like, of course, it is fighting terrorism all over the world and we need the United States to come keep us safe. This is this is the origin of this. And what does this mean for the people of Latin America? How is this going to benefit them? Well, let me be wildly blunt. It is not. Here are some highlights of the Monroe Doctrine in action that we will be talking about in future episodes. Some of them might even get their own episode. First and foremost, upcoming, the Mexican-American War in 1846, in which the United States would argue it was saving Mexico from itself. Let me be blunt. 55% of Mexican territory was annexed by the United States after the Mexican-American War. Was that helpful to Mexico? Right. The Big Brother policy, literally, that's what it's called, in 1881, where Latin American markets must remain open for the United States so that they could guide them in U.S. ways of, of course, economic growth. Of course, dictated by the U.S. dollar, dictated by American business leaders, and meant to profit the United States first and foremost over the nations of Colombia and Peru and etc. Yeah, this is like, it's not the first, but it's sort of the evolution of using economics to dominate internationally the only corollary only corollary of 1895 where the united states has the right to intervene in disputes in all of latin america to save them from themselves and this was promoted specifically by a dispute between venezuela and brazil um, that led to conflict the united states used the only corollary to the monroe doctrine they now have the right to intervene in all military disputes with the united states military the Spanish-American War of 1898, where they liberated Cuba, Puerto Rico, um, as well as like the Philippines and Guam, but they liberated them, liberated them, liberated them in air quotes, because as you all know, Cuba was not liberated. It became a U.S. sugar colony, uh, eventually liberating themselves with the Cuban Revolution. Puerto Rico, well, it liberated? I don't know. Just a territory, not a state, doesn't get all the rights of a state, doesn't get independence, U.S. territory, subservient. Uh, to this day. So again, that's the Spanish-American War is another great example. The Roosevelt Corollary of 1904, which gave the United States the right to intervene for any, and this is, and I quote his language, flagrant and chronic wrongdoing by a Latin American nation. So again, this kind of vague language, anything considered a flagrant and chronic wrongdoing by a Latin American nation would be met with American military might under Roosevelt. Teddy, this Teddy, to be clear, not not Franklin. Thoughts on yeah, that? I mean, this is 
he just leaves it up for interpretation, right? It's conveniently can be used any time that it would serve the United States. Right. The United States would obviously get get its hands meddling in the pre-Mexican revolution with the uh, uplifting of the brutal dictator, Porfirio Diaz. Um, they would then get their hands muddy by basically playing political roulette during the Mexican revolution between like 1910 and 1919, supporting different leaders and then unsupporting different leaders, Huerta and Obregón and all of these other people. Like the United States was already getting into the dirt. We know what's going on with Panama and the Panama Canal. This is colonialism. And if not imperialism, although we'll probably have an episode distinguishing the two if we can, if that's even possible. But yes, Um, we go further. I mean, even the 1960s, we've got Operation Condor, which is a United States like CIA operative under John F. Kennedy, everyone's favorite, John F. Kennedy, that was meant to go down and economically sabotage any Latin American countries that might have some socialist policies. It led to like the rise of guys like Augusto Pinochet in Chile, who killed like 40,000 of his own people. This is U.S. meddling to a T. This is colonialism. Nick, what do you think of this Monroe Doctrine? I'm skipping over so many different things. Basically, every nation state in Latin America, to the best of my knowledge, save I think two or three, have at least dealt with one U.S. invasion in their history. I'm trying to think the two or three that have not, and I should have a list in front of me, but I don't. I don't believe the United States invaded Paraguay uh, yet or ever. Um, I'm trying to think of some others. Um yeah, I mean, there's got to be a couple or where we don't have a military base. Like, yeah. Mm. It's, any thoughts? No, I think that it is. It's so important to view this document. As the way that we've just described it compared to, like you said, the sort of celebratory myth that, well, this is just like the United States has this relatively new country looking out for everyone like south of it and like making sure that their independence is also protected like that's absolute nonsense right no country especially the united states does anything unless it in some way serves them as well or serves them completely and only. right and i'm sure there's some listeners at home like well of course it's the united states why would they do anything that benefits anybody else that's what all nations do they just benefit themselves that's fine but not every other nations do benefit themselves but not all nations use others' plight and use their own aggression and suppress others to benefit themselves. Like, right. yes, Costa Rica's government, for example, does things to benefit Costa Rica. But here we have this idea, how many countries has Costa Rica invaded to get those exactly. benefits? Yep. <laughs> like, that's the point we're making here. Like, Plus, I mean, that just reveals the problems with nation states. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and like I said, there are so many different examples. I mean, Haiti, off the top of my head, the United States has occupied Haiti three times. It's occupied Mexico City uh, a handful of times, at least two, maybe three, Veracruz. Like, I mean, these interventions, uh, we've got the Bay of Pigs invasion, we've got the uh, Contras in Nicaragua. Like, it is just the examples throughout Latin America, the hegemony that U.S. imperialism has over Latin America from basically the Monroe um, Monroe Doctrine on is legion. And it has wildly hindered the especially economic progress and independence of most of these nations. So when you that's look, why it's important to point to this document as like a turning right. point in history, because that's exactly what it does. It, it still has ramifications to this day, clearly. 
Yeah, like why has Mexico's economy suffered basically from the Mexican-American war on? Well, it never got off the ground. The United States has been meddling from the Mexican-American war on, like I said, from the propping up of Porfirio Diaz to, of course, the uh, the political roulette during the revolutionary process to compromising the integrity of more like forward-thinking presidents um, after the revolution that were challenging like the economic policies of the pre. And now I'm going way off on a tangent of Latin American history that I shouldn't. So let's real myself back in before I go through all of like Mexico's history as well. All right, back to the story here. Let's uh, let's kind of close out the Republican colonial era with another example. The Monroe Doctrine, though, cannot be overlooked. Not only does it set the stage for U.S. economic and military uh, hegemony over Latin America, it also provides a template for later doctrines for the United States to use in other parts of the world. I already gave some examples, right? The Truman Doctrine to stop like communism and the Bush Doctrine in, its, in the war on terror. Both have very similar language and give the United States an excuse to go to other parts of the world and dictate to those parts how their lives are going to work. That's really the, the lesson from the Monroe Doctrine. The last little bit here as we go through James Monroe and his like very colonial, colonialist mindset is the example of Liberia, which also deserves its own episode, but I want to at least give, give it a mention here because we're talking about James Monroe. Liberia a nation state on the west coast of Africa. We cannot forget this massive political gem of the era. Um, in 1822, a society existed called the Settlement of American Colonization Society. Well, it's there in the title, the American Colonization Society. We had a society for colonization, just so we're clear. The goal of this society is to bring American ideals to Africa. You see, we thought it was an, a, a way to get free blacks back to Africa um, because racism um, during the time period. <laughs> like that's like racism, like ever, like most of American history, because racism will answer a lot of questions. Why did this happen? Because racism. Now, um, here's the thing. They were going to try and move, and they thought this was nice. Abraham Lincoln was part of this movement as well, mind you, the, the, the great hero, Abraham Lincoln. We're going to move recently freed black people back to Africa because that's what they want. Well, here's the problem with that way of thinking is that they've been out of Africa now for, well, the better part of centuries. And they're, they're, they're American. They are American people. And the fact that America refuses to recognize them as equal citizens, that's what this reveals more than anything. So sending them to a different place, that's not fixing any sort of a problem. It is still revealing your inherent racism and lack of recognition for an entire race of people. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, and the secondary instead goal of recognizing is them Sorry, as human beings yeah. and full citizens, their solution is to just move them to a different continent. Like, are you serious? With the goal that they're going to bring Americanism to Africa and Americanize right. Africa that way. With that, it's like, not, it's, that yeah, very it's, subversive goal. Yeah, that's very clear. Like, we have to be clear on that. It's not like. Here's this territory. Go live your lives. It's we're going to Americanize Africa, starting with this very small portion. Like, that's right. ridiculous. Between 1822 and 1862, 15,000, an estimated 15,000 U.S. Um, uh, Americans and uh, 3,000 other um citizens or people of the Caribbean um, were brought Western culture to West Africa 
through a colonial process, for lack of a better term, a softer colonial practice by merely taking these people that have the same complexion, apparently, and that's all that matters. There's not different language, language barriers or cultural barriers or religious barriers or social. There's no other barriers. Like, uh, obviously, anybody that is the same color must they all think the same and act the same. This is the ignorance of, of the United States during this time period in the James Monroe era, that they're just going to go and everybody's going to get along because why wouldn't they? Like, why wouldn't they? They're all of the same complexion. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, the goal was to bring American culture to West Africa. Um, Liberia was officially granted it or declared its independence from the United States in 1847. The United States did not like the fact that Liberia was done being told what to do by the United States uh, and refused to recognize Liberia as an independent country in 1862. But like the legacy is there, Liberia, liberty, like we see it. They, they carved this country out. The capital to this day is Monrovia, named literally after James Monroe. Um, but then when they start doing things on their own, the United States doesn't recognize them. Again, they don't recognize them until 1862. And this was a U.S. colony. So they refused to recognize Liberia's independence movement against the United States. Um, any thoughts on like Liberia? Again, it deserves its its own like episode, but I wanted to like kind of talk about it because it is part of the colonial era that, that we're in here, the Republican colonial era of the United States. And it is a clear sign of it. Thoughts? I think mean, it reveals just more hypocrisy by the leaders of the United States, right? Like, as soon as Liberia wants their own independence, then, like, that's not okay. But we support independence for ourselves, and we'll even protect the independence of all these, like, Latin American countries, you know, like, with huge caveats. But Liberia, like, not for you, because we don't like that, and it doesn't serve our the ends that we're trying to achieve in this territory. So as usual, we went through a very critical history of an era in U.S. history, and that is what Myth is America is about. We are not here to celebrate it. We are not here to champion it. We're here to lay out, like, again, the other side of the ethically constituted story in U.S. history. And we did that for the Republican, the often overlooked Republican colonial era of the early 1800s um, between these two episodes, the episode prior on Tecumseh and 1812 and stuff like that. So... Um, Again, we like colonialism on an international level. Going back, we have Liberia. We have the Monroe Doctrine in Latin America. We have the Barbary Coast Wars in um, uh, the Mediterranean and North Africa. We have the wars on First Nations. We have the acquisition of Comanche and Osage, or Osage land. All of this is taking place at the time. Um, and usually when you go through school in this era of everything we just talked about, you get Louisiana Purchase was a super good deal, and Lewis and Clark had an amazing adventure. Like that, that, there you go. That's what you learned in grade school. That was the whole era. Yeah, right I was going to say, like. Color in a picture. Maybe play Oregon Trail on the, uh, on the, uh, on the, on the Commodore computer or whatever. Like. Yeah, the Apple TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say, is like, not only is the critical history not ever given i think that even the non-critical history of this period is hardly ever even given like you said it's like louisiana purchase missouri compromise lewis and clark yeah. did some stuff let's move on yep. you know what i mean which is weird because this is actually a really really important period in the establishment of the country of the united states so uh, it, but there's a lot of sort of skeletons in the closet so i guess i can see why this period is sort of glossed over right 
Yeah, like I said, more more horrible treatment of indigenous people, more slavery. Like that's obviously why it's overlooked. And like I said, for us, how we kind of finished up there, like this international doctrine of using the savior mentality, the United States police savior mentality, to start to exert its force on other national actors through the Monroe, Monroe, Monroe doctrine. Like that becomes a legacy of the United States. Uh, and I know people of all different politi political persuasions actually have a problem with that. They don't want to be like they don't want the United States to be the world's policeman. And whether you're using the far right or the far left, whatever example of why you don't want that to happen, so be it. But what this episode provides is the origin of that, the Monroe Doctrine. So, um, all right, sociologists, take us home. What, what do we got? Yeah, catch us online, revolutionandideology.com. If you're not watching this on YouTube, uh, know that we have a YouTube channel where we post uh, videos for every single episode and other videos that we use in our classes uh, and just other random videos that we've created about different topics. Um, leave us a rating and leave a comment on whatever podcast app you're listening to, or if you're watching on YouTube, leave us a comment and like the video and subscribe to our channel. Um, tell your friends about us. If you like what we're doing, share the podcast, share the YouTube channel. That's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.